Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Robert Black. You can call me The Professor. You might know me from Michael Myers Minute, the podcast where I delved into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. In her essay, Her Body Himself, included in the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, Carol Clover delves into the tropes of the slasher film. Into the Night is no slasher film, but bear with me for a moment. A particularly negative view of Diana might suggest that she uses all of these men in her life, not just Ed. Hasi was going to pay her for a trip to Zurich, Bud Herman, Hamid Murati, Jack Caper. Ed is just the latest of her victims, and she takes him on a parade through the men she has already used up like Michael Myers props up his victims to be found later. But it is the tunnel here as we get into minute 82 that takes me to Clover, because one of her catalog tropes is the quote-unquote decidedly intra-uterine location she calls the quote terrible place, dark and often damp, in which the killer lives or lurks and whence he stages his most terrifying attacks, end quote. She brings Freud into it, as you do. From the uncanny, quote, It often happens that male patients declare that they feel there is something uncanny about the female genital organs. This unheimlich place, however, is the entrance to the former Heim, home, of all human beings, to the place where everyone dwelt once upon a time and in the beginning. There is a humorous saying, love is homesickness, and whenever a man dreams of a place or a country and says to himself, still in the dream, this place is familiar to me, I have been there before. We may interpret the place as being his mother's genitals, or her body. In this case, too, the unheimlich is what was once heimish, homelike, familiar. The prefix un is the token of repression. End quote. Clover argues regarding horror, quote, It is the exceptional film that does not mark as significant the moment that the killer leaps out of the dark recesses of a corridor or cavern at the trespassing victim, usually the final girl, long after the other particulars have faded. The viewers will remember the images of Amy assaulted from the dark halls of the morgue, he knows you're alone, or Melanie trapped in the attic as the savage birds close in, the birds. In such scenes of convergence, the other is at its bisexual mightiest, the victim at her tiniest, and the component of sadomasochism at its most blatant. End quote. And you are wondering how this connects to Diana and Ed in the tunnel. Drift with me into the Freudian. Diana has just invited Ed into a dark hole where they will, in theory, sleep together. In a different film, this is the moment where our leads consummate their partnership. Metaphorically, this is exactly that. Taking the slasher film angle, Ed is our virginal final girl. Emasculated early on by his inability to perform well in his marriage or his job. Emasculated early on by his wife's infidelity. Emasculated even by the loss of his own car and having to borrow the much larger, the King Lives convertible, that belongs to Diana's brother. And now he has been driving an even bigger limousine. On the one hand, this could be taken as Ed trading up, if he were not still so resistant to so much of what is going on. Diana is still leading the way. Her choices, her needs, are dictating where they go, what they do. In a darker film, 
she would embrace her femme fatale role and Ed would be very much expendable in the end. She would abandon him as he sleeps and never look back, if she did not kill him herself. So on the other hand, Ed is being dwarfed by these cars, just as he is being dwarfed by these various men. He is our final girl and here in this tunnel is his chance to finally do something. To take advantage of this time alone in the dark, waiting to f*** Diana already. This is the downtime before the final act, and this is where that scene belongs. Except this is not that scene, because Into the Night is a strange beast. E. Ann Kaplan suggests in Women in Film, Both Sides of the Cinema, quote, Woman is now neither helpless victim nor phallic substitute. Rather, the threat that her sexuality poses emerges in projecting the hostility onto the female image. As in all noir films, the heroine is now a femme fatale exuding her seductive sexuality directly. Man at once desires her and fears her power over him. Drawing man away from his goal, her sexuality intervenes destructively in his life. Marked as evil because of her open sexuality, such a woman must be destroyed. While in the victim pattern, the heroine takes the suffering upon herself and usually dies through sickness or poverty. And while in the fetishism pattern, the woman is brought under control diegetically, Usually through marriage, the femme fatale must be murdered. The gun or knife stands in for the phallus, which must dominate her by eliminating her. The noir film showed a greater openness about the threat that female sexuality poses, since it allowed female sexuality in all its dangerous difference to be expressed. Hayworth in Shanghai resists domination by all the mechanisms that in the previous films worked to suppress female sexuality or to render it harmless. Female sexuality is here fully expressed but the sexual woman's duplicity and betrayal mark her as evil, granting man the moral right to destroy her, even if such destruction means depriving himself of a much-needed pleasure. The contemporary film, of course, has gone even further than the noir film in the open representation of female sexuality. The causes for this are well known. The various 1960s movements produced radical cultural changes resulting in a loosening of rigid puritanical codes, and the women's movement encouraged women to take possession of their own sexuality, gay or straight. The open display of female sexuality has been threatening to patriarchy and has forced a greater degree of directness about the underlying causes for relegating women to absence, silence, and marginality. The mechanisms that worked in earlier decades, i.e. victimizing, fetishizing, self-righteous murdering, to obscure patriarchal fears no longer worked in the post-1960s era. The sexual woman could no longer be designated evil since women had won their right to be good and sexual, and the need to use the phallus as the prime weapon for dominating women, no matter whom they are or whether or not they have done anything wrong, could no longer be hidden. As Molly Haskell has noted, this resulted in an unprecedented number of films in the early 1970s showing women being raped. The larger patriarchal hostility is now expressed in the notion that all women are yearning for sex all the time. The repulsion in this notion for men comes from being forced to recognize the vagina and thus sexual difference. Man's reaction is to want to give it to her, as painfully as possible and by force, in order first to punish her for this imagined desire, second to assert his control over her sexuality, and finally to prove his manhood by his ability to dominate with the phallus. End quote. Except the emasculated Ed Oaken has no impulse to dominate. Diana's first line this minute is certainly open to Freudian interpretation. The only thing I can handle is snakes. I hate snakes, Jacques! I hate them! At this point, a snake would be reassuring. As Fink from Meatballs might say, he wants it. 
take Ed as the final girl, the virginal female, and how do you take this line? At this point, a snake would be reassuring? Don't be scared. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'll keep you safe. Just you and me, sweet thing. I am reminded in a slightly inaccurate way of the Terminator. See, when I first saw the Terminator, I was, what, eight, nine years old. I had not seen it on the big screen, saw it on cable or maybe a video rented from the warehouse. And then, I did not see it again really, except for bits and pieces on cable now and then until I bought myself a VHS of the film as a teen. In the meantime, I always conflated two scenes from the film. The scene under the bridge with Sarah bandaging Reese and him telling her about John, and the sex scene in the motel. In my head still, even though I know these are two separate scenes, they link, and maybe it is the inherent Freudian angle. Tunnel as inverse of the phallus. Man and woman enter a dark tunnel together. There's something sexual about it. White light. Pain. It's like being born, maybe. Oh my god. I caught one back there. You mean you got shot? It's not bad. But we gotta get you to a doctor. That's okay, forget it. What do you mean, forget it? Are you crazy? Take this off. Jesus. See, it passed right through the meat. Oh, this is gonna make me puke. Would you just talk about something? What? I don't know anything, just talk. Tell me about my son. It's about my height. He has your eyes. What's he like? You trust him. He's got a strength. I'd die for John Connor. At least now I know what to name him. Don't suppose you know who the father is. Now what? There's more to the Terminator angle than just the tunnel. The intimacy and trust at the end of this minute. Diana falling asleep, alone here with this man she met less than 12 hours ago. There is this. Minutes 67 to 70, Ed and Diana sit in Ship's restaurant, and the Real Jaws Minute guys pointed out an odd visual. Behind Diana in her iconic red jacket, two other people in the place are wearing red. One of those is an older woman. Her red jacket, not the same, but definitely not dissimilar from Diana's. And her hair is cut short. Again, not dissimilar to Diana's. I'm watching the whole movie again, getting ready to write my notes for this week's minutes. I know I am aiming for the Terminator angle with the tunnel, and I see an older woman, and I get to thinking, that is Diana, from the future. I want to skim the rest of the film for background women, for folks wearing red, the doorman at the hotel comes to mind, to see just how well they keep Diana on track. The Savak might be bumbling fools a lot of the time, but they clearly know how to get things done when it comes down to it. Their destruction of property, their murder of Hasi, and surely they followed him to the airport and waited for him to come back into the parking lot with Diana. Their murder of Christy. They may be bumbling fools, but they are dangerous bumbling fools. Old Diana, come back from the future, is keeping an eye out. Hell, maybe she is the real Monsieur Melville that David Bowie's Colin Morris serves. He seems to just know where Ed and Diana are out of nowhere. Diana Melville from the future telling him what is what makes perfect sense. And while he acts threatening to both Ed and Diana, what better way to keep them moving? Old Diana needs to keep Ed and young Diana together. Maybe just so young Diana survives this ordeal, or maybe it is something bigger. 
and that their son shall rule the galaxy. This is the moment that Diana gets to know something personal about Ed, finally, about his wife having an affair. And how does the scene end? A waitress has some trouble with her tray. What other film includes a waiter having trouble with a tray? Groundhog Day, home of the time loop, which time traveler Diana surely knows something about. Never mind the Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum realm angle. Plus, The Terminator and Into the Night, both LA-based, both taking place primarily over the course of a couple days, but the action taking place almost entirely at night, both with a central female being helped along by a central male. Combine the Savak into a singular antagonist, maybe instead of the bumbling fools they are, they manage to be as menacing as the Terminator. After Ed says his line about a snake being reassuring, Goldblum looks toward Diana like he wants a response, like Ed wants a laugh. But Diana is oblivious. The genderedness of their roles is a little off. He is the virginal final girl. She is the driven hero who knows where they are going. She invited him into her hole. He wants her snake. But she does not notice. As they approach the other end of the tunnel, and the camera looks on from behind, I find myself turning to Laura Melvi, visual pleasure in narrative cinema. Quote, In a world ordered by sexual imbalance, pleasure in looking has been split between active-slash-male and passive-slash-female. The determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure, which is styled accordingly. In their traditional exhibitionist role, women are simultaneously looked at and displayed, with their appearance coded for strong visual and erotic impact so that they can be said to connote to be looked at-ness. End quote. It is interesting how much this film relies on Michelle Pfeiffer's natural charm and beauty. And back in minute 29, we see her fully nude, see her getting dressed, which is actually sexualized more than her nudity. But otherwise, her sexuality is not necessarily on display, except for a default influence she has on men and women, including many a podcaster on this show who have commented on how good she looks. Before we get to Diana's nudity, first we see Larry and girl on boat undressing. She may not get a name... But if not for our own cultural sexualization of the female chest, Girl on Boat is hardly subject to the male gaze in any larger capacity than Larry is. His bare chest is just as worth of connoting to be looked at as. Or maybe it is that Landis is making a film built on a foundation dictated by gendered, sexually imbalanced roles, but he is not specifically producing a sexual film. Sexuality and sensuality are often driving forces in a film noir, but here it is almost taken for granted that Ed might be attracted to Diana, or vice versa. Because while the plot may meander, it is always busy doing something. And it does not have time for overt sexuality, except, for example, in the background, as in the bathroom at the hotel. And so we come to this tunnel. If you were to map this plot onto the plot of the Terminator, for example, does this tunnel line up with the Under the Bridge conversation? Does it line up with the sex scene? Is the intimacy inherent in actively falling asleep together in an enclosed space a deliberate stand-in for sex? I mean, why does this tunnel sequence happen at all? Why not arrive at Jack's house in the early hours of the morning, maybe just as the sun is rising? 
The rest of the film could happen exactly as it does, taking place during the next night, but we would skip time in the safety of Jack's house, or in the presence of the federal agents, rather than in the darkness of a storm drain. A magic storm drain, no less, but we will get to that next minute. They reach the gate at the other end of the tunnel, and Ed reacts. Now what? Diana is on one knee. Ed remains upright, but hunched over. Second 12, he crouches down as Diana takes off her jacket, and we get the reverse shot. Well, the grounds are crawling with servants during the day. She folds up her jacket without explanation. Wait here till dark. Close on Ed. You're kidding, it's only noon. Close on Diana. She puts her folded-up jacket against the corner of the wall as a pillow and leans her head into it, mm. her eyes already closed. Oh. Try to rest, get some sleep. Close on Ed. Sleep here? Diana. Close on Diana. I'm gonna try to grab a nap. And she is already asleep. Close on Ed. Diana. Close on Diana, second 43. Close on Ed, second 45. He looks at her a moment longer, then sits down himself. Settled against the wall, his eyeline returns to Diana, but we fade to black, rather than return to, well, the eye camera of his male gaze. By second 53, the screen is black. Second 55, fade in on Diana, no longer sitting up, but still with her head resting on her jacket. A hand comes into frame, covers her mouth, second 57. She wakes up abruptly, panicked, quickly sits up, and time runs out for this minute. Once again, I am Robert Black. You may call me The Professor. Incidental music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Check out lemmingdrops.com to see all the stuff I have been up to, including Michael Myers Minute, the podcast where I looked at the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. There was talk of fate, destiny, cosmic horror, obsessing about Halloween costumes, diving deep into the novelization, experimenting with covering a single minute of film and one minute of podcast, including intro, outro, summary, and commentary, and breaking down one minute, one second at a time. You can find the End of the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or check out nightminute.com. Follow at nightminute on Twitter, or join us on Facebook in the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the End of the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.